Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Just Work podcast. I'm Kim Scott, author of Just Work and Wesley's co-host. Hi, and I'm Wesley Faulkner. I am Kim's co-host, and I haven't written a thing except for blog posts and (laughs) social media posts and have tried out threads. And joining us today on the show is Eric Deggins. So, Eric, could you please give us a short intro? Sure. My name is Eric Deggins, and I'm TV critic for National Public Radio. I'm also media analyst at NPR. I'm also an adjunct professor at Duke University. I did write a book uh, (laughs) over my shoulder. It's called Race Bader about um, race and media. I also give public presentations in addition to my work for NPR, where I talk a lot about race in media and social issues. Thank you so much for being here. It is, uh, it's a real honor. I think before we jump into the usual me reading something, I would love, mm. if, if it's okay uh, with you all, just to ask my own ignorance. I don't know what the origin of the phrase race baiter is, and I feel like this is something that I should know. <coughs> Well, it's interesting because I did try to, uh, you know, when I was writing, the book came out about 10 years ago. And when I was working on it, I tried to talk to some linguists about the etymology of the word. And I I think the furthest back they could go was sort of like the 20s or the 1910s. And basically, it it was an effort by politicians to uh, gin up, you know, uh, animosity against others. At that time, it, it might have been uh, the Chinese and it might have been um, Italians and Irish, uh, but eventually they got around to, um, you know, more conventional uh, groups <laughs> uh, like right. uh, like black folks and, and uh, Latinos. But it was always used to refer to politicians that would um, try to play to the racial prejudices of their audience. And, you know, when I was doing my book, one of the things that I noticed is that conservatives would use the term race baiter to refer to people who are trying to talk about race uh, and try to suggest that the very act of asking people to think about racial issues and talk about them and consider how systemic oppression works in media and education and employment and places like that, that that somehow was racist and that you were being a race baiter by trying to have those conversations. And so, um, you know, it, it was all sparked by uh, Bill O'Reilly on his show, he used to do this opening monologue called Talking Points Memo when he was a commentator on Fox News Channel. And he did one out of the blue, I had no idea it was coming, where he called me the biggest race baiter in the country. Oh my and gosh. I, and I still don't know why he did it. Um, my hunch is that I had written a column where I talked about some really insulting things that he had said when he uh, he he talked on his radio show about having lunch with uh, Al Sharpton at, at uh, a, a well-known restaurant in Harlem and how mm-hmm. he was surprised that the patrons weren't coming in, grabbing their crotches and cursing at the waiters. And oh waiters. my gosh. And this, and this is Sylvia's. And if you know Sylvia's, if you know New York, it, you know, it's, it's for middle-class black folks. Yeah. You know, everybody's dressed up and nobody, yeah. <laughs> nobody's yeah. doing that. Right. It'd be, yeah. it'd be like uh It'd be like going to the plaza and saying, I can't yeah. believe people aren't wearing overalls. You yeah. know? So, so anyway, um, I think he was mad about that column, but he never said during the commentary why he called me that, really. And he never gave me a heads up, of course. He never tried to actually talk to me about what he was saying about me. Uh, and then uh, a friend of mine suggested, well, you should, given how conservatives are using this term race baiter uh, about people trying to talk, trying to start these conversations, you should name your book that. 
And, yeah. and so I, so I did. And, and so the upshot is I was never able to really find out the etymology of it, but I did notice how the usage of it was changing. And, and so I was trying to sort of reclaim the word a little bit by naming my book that, but I also think I kind of scared some white people out of reading my book, unfortunately, <laughs> because, uh, you know, part of what I try to do is make these conversations easier on people, uh, yeah. ironically, but the book title is very provocative and I think it may have scared some people. Well, a good provocative book title is kind of what you have to do to sell a book though. So I can, yeah. I bet your publishers love, love the title. And it's, I mean, I asked the question in part because when I, when I hear the term race baiter, I think of the older definition, like this is a politician who's using race to divide people, you know, in order to gain. And it's, it's all, I think in the early, certainly in the early history of this country, it was, it was very wealthy people who were trying to divide people who would ordinarily have been in solidarity with one another, um, using race. Uh, so yep. that was, that's kind of what springs to mind for me. But then I was like, Wesley and I were talking earlier, or does it mean now, is it more the way that people are using terms like, you know, identity politics? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the beauty of a phrase like that is that it's really both, you know, I, I chose that title because I was talking about what certain media outlets were doing. And in particular, you know, the book came out 10 years ago. So I, I was talking about Fox News Channel when it was much more subtle about how it talked about race. You know, now the racism is easy to see, but back then they used to try and pretend to be a more conventional cable news channel. So you had to really watch closely to see the moments when the mask would slip and they would say something horrifically racist. Yes. So, So part of, there's a whole chapter devoted to um, you know, Fox News style fear mongering. So, so, so part of the title refers to that, but part of the title is also referring to, um, you know, um, the, so I'm using that old meaning to refer yeah. to what the media outlets are doing. And then I'm also sort of satirizing, um, the attempt to silence people. And if you, if you read the, the, the introductory chapter, like I, I, I explain all of this there. And, um, you know, the thing that's, uh, sad about sort of where we are as a country is that a lot of things that I described in that book have all come true in terms of how media outlets talk about race and how, um, you know, the attempt to silence people, you know, and the things that Ron DeSantis is doing, even in the state where I live in Florida, to try and keep people from talking about race um, as as a way. uh, When I give public presentations on stuff like this, um, I talk about the Virginia slave codes, mm-hmm. um, and those were created exactly in the way that you just talked about. Um, the wealthy people who control the state wanted to, um, end this collaborative work between white indentured servants and black slaves. Yeah. And so they created a system of laws that would elevate the average white person over the average black person in order to destroy um, that working relationship that they had where they were challenging the people who were in the state. And that was in the 1700s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're, st- and, and so now here we have Fox news and Breitbart.com and Tucker Carlson and Glenn Beck and, and, you know, Laura Ingram and, and Megan Kelly and all of these people doing the exact same, exact same thing. thing. Yeah. The exact yeah. Same thing. Yeah. And Ronald Reagan also did a lot of the exact same things, although he was uh, he was maybe 
uh, you know, sh- shocking to say now, but more subtle then than than politicians are now about doing. Yeah, and and who was in charge of his media strategy? Yeah, Roger yeah. Ailes. Yeah, the man, the man who invented Fox News. Yeah, it's funny. It's a uh, you're talking about the slave codes, and that was also the invention of white people. Yeah, yeah. it was. The, uh, it was well, it was the invention of whiteness as a legal principle. In, in yeah. America. Yeah, because because at that point, uh, often, for example, Irish people were not considered white, uh, and and uh, and then that ch- that changed in order to create to sow these divisions where they where there was natu- natural actually solidarity. Yeah, because you would often have um, white European immigrants tasked yeah. with overseeing slaves. Yeah. So you yeah. you know you had to give them a little more uh, agency. Yeah. Ooh, this is going to be a good talk. <laughs> yes. Well, this, yeah. The, and, and part of the goal of Just Work is to build solidarity among people who ought to be in solidarity and to, to sort of not let a tiny number of people get away with this. And one of the things that Wesley and I have been talking about over the last few weeks is sort of, at, at least for me, and I would love to get your perspective on this, uh, one of the reasons why I haven't responded in either to things that I've seen happen to other people or things that have happened to me is that I've conflated bias, prejudice, and bullying and as though they're the same thing. And they're three very different things. <laughs> and so the last couple of weeks, we read a little bit about bias and a little bit about, uh, about prejudice. And so this week, I thought I'd read a couple of paragraphs on what I said about bullying and, and get your feedback. And I'm the radical person radical canner person. So I really want your feedback. Sure. Is that all right? Sounds great to me. All right. I'll jump in. Bullying, being mean. That's my definition of bullying. (laughs) So bias I define as not meaning it. Prejudice I define as meaning it. And bullying I define as being mean. Uh, Respond with a you statement or a question. One day my children and their cousins describe being bullied in school. I recommended they say, I feel sad when you blah, 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 blah. They did little to conceal how stupid they thought my advice was. I defended my position until my daughter said, banging her fist on the table in frustration, mom, they are trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell them they succeeded? (laughs) Bullies are trying to hurt someone. Pointing out the pain that they are inflicting with an I statement doesn't make them stop and may even encourage them to double down. And telling them where the boundaries are with an it statement, which is what you use with prejudice, will likely encourage them to push past the boundary. Bullies like to break the rules, so using an it statement to tell them what the rules are doesn't help. A you response, as in, what's going on for you here, or you need to stop talking to me that way, works better. That's because the bully is trying to put you in a submissive role to demand that you answer their questions or shine a scrutinizing spotlight on you. A you response puts you in the active role. There's too many yous in this paragraph. (laughs) Makes clear that you are not going to tolerate their abuse and shines an uncomfortable spotlight on their behavior. A leader's job is to create three kinds of consequences for bullying, conversational, compensation, and career. Leaders need to learn how to shut down bullying when it happens in conversation. They need to make sure that people who engage consistently in bullying don't get good ratings or big bonuses, and they need to resist the temptation to promote bullies, even if they seem to be high-performing bullies. There comes a moment in every team's history when the assholes begin to win, 
that is the moment when the team's culture begins to lose and poor results will follow. So I'll stop there. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. What you say makes a lot of sense. This is, you're talking about like a work context. Yeah. All of this. Um, I mean, it's always been my um, experience that the culture of a place is shaped by the leaders. Yeah. So if a, if a bully succeeds in a workplace, it's because the leadership uh, condones it. Yeah. And 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 so I I you know the 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 one part of that that sort of struck me is that I don't think you're hardly ever in a situation where a leader has to deal with a bully other than. Um, a, a bully who is advancing other than, yeah. um, you know, maybe they hired somebody and then they start to find out that this person is a bully and they have to deal with it. Um, because if that person has power in that situation, um, if someone has allowed that to happen. And, you know, leaders in, in workplaces are often like parents. You know, the workers look to you and they don't judge you by what you say. They judge you by what you do. Yes. So if you want to eliminate bullying from your um, your work uh, social uh, environment, then then you have to be the change you want to see. Yeah. And, and you and and you just show a lack of tolerance for bullying. You uh, fire people who indulge in it um, overtly, and you don't do it yourself. And then you create an environment where everyone knows you don't even necessarily have to tell them. Everyone can tell that bullying is not a tactic that works, you know, inside the, the, the company or inside the office um, places where I've worked. That's the, where, where bullying has been stifled. That's how it's. Been stifled. Yeah. I think you're, you're exactly right. Because if you, if you allow someone to get away with, with bullying, then then they're going to keep doing it and it's going to get worse and and people will pretty soon follow follow that bully. I think though sometimes what happens is that you know when you once you get a complicated hierarchy you get a manager of managers and they don't notice because the bully is not a bully up they're a bully down and and they it's there's kind of a sense of denial. I'm always super skeptical about that. I'm yeah. always super skeptical about that. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny, you know, I've had people who run businesses ask me to come talk to them about diversity issues. And I've always said to them, you know what your diversity issues are. You just have yeah. to have the strength to face them. Yeah. You know what they yep. are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, And I feel like that way with bullies too, at companies, you know who the bullies are. Yeah. I mean, unless you're an incredibly out of touch manager or owner. You yeah. know who the bullies are in your organization. The question is, do you have the will to deal with them? You know, yes. and, and particularly if they if they're bullies because they kind of act like you. Yes, <laughs> that's that is the real pro- that is the real power corrupts. You know, and yes. uh, and and often people who don't start out that way realize when they can get away with it. They do. They do. They allow. Well, you know, the interesting things like I, you know, I cover entertainment, right? So I cover a lot of workplaces in show yeah. business. Yeah. And, you know, there's a tremendous debate going on now about um, the notion that the TV and film business have internalized this idea that bullying and a corrosive workplace is necessary to do what they do. It is not. And um, but but finding a way to confront those powerful bullies who have made, you know, working in entertainment so toxic for so many people is is difficult 
you know, for example, um, you know, I met Damon Lindelof, who is, uh, he was the showrunner for Watchmen, the HBO show, and he was uh, the co-showrunner for Lost when that show was revolutionizing television. And, you know, I, when he did Watchmen, HBO's Watchmen, this was a show that recentered a superhero narrative on a black family and was considered really groundbreaking. And I spent a lot of time talking to him about how he ran his writer's room and, and how they developed the story. And, uh, you know, he seemed like somebody who was really sensitive and, and, and uh, aware of these issues. And then I find out from a friend who wrote a book called Burn It Down that a lost writer's room was toxic. And that they were openly racist and openly sexist, and wow, <laughs> and and you know Damon was running it, you know, and and so um, you know I think people get put in charge of things, and you know running a TV show, for example, there's a tremendous amount of pressure, there's a tremendous amount of stuff you have to do, and you often don't get very many, very much instruction on how to manage people. And you go from being a worker bee who's written a few episodes to being the person who came up with the show and now has to run an, an organization that employs 200 people, including, um, you know, famous actors who can be a handful. <laughs> and, you know, back then they had to do 22 episodes of television a year for something like six or seven years. So, so it's a lot of pressure and you don't get a lot of training. And so in the light of day, you hear about some of the things they allowed, and then they try to explain how it happened, and you can't understand how it happened, but that's really what happened. You know, people got put in charge um, and, and not given a lot of training on how they were supposed to run things. And, and, and if they had a bunch of toxic bosses before they came to power, then that's all they know how to do. Uh, and, and ultimately, all the network cares about is the getting the episodes. So, so that's a conversation. In fact, you know, you should reach out to Maureen Ryan, who wrote the book, write it down. Um, yeah, I'm going to buy that. Yeah, that is, sounds talk like to her because she is, has, has been a very prominent voice in kickstarting this conversation about working conditions in Hollywood and uh, trying to rid Hollywood of this notion that a workplace has to be abusive in order to achieve greatness. I was just thinking about what you're talking about leadership and how workplace toxicity, um, it, it, and I'm sorry, I'm trigger Godwin's law here, but, uh, mm -hmm. the Milgram shock experiments, um, in the sixties where yeah. there, he was watching the Nuremberg war trials about how people could do these horrible, horrible things. And a lot of it was just, just following orders. And so the shock experiment was just seeing how far they could push people just to do ungodly nasty things to other people because they of the authority and they were told that this is something they had to do and so that sounds like what you're talking about is that kind of structure where the ends justify the meat the means justify the ends or i forget whether the order but the basically the well, part, part yes. of it is that but part of it is also that these people came up in a system many of these people came up in a system that was toxic and abusive yeah. So they feel, not only do they not know how to stop doing that, but they also feel like I had to go through that. Exactly. So why shouldn't these people have to go through that? Right. Um, you know, if you if you ever talk to people who've had abusive childhoods or abusive backgrounds, you find there's a couple different ways to respond to it. You can become an abuser, or you can become someone who who 
you know, leans away from that as much as possible. And I, and, and so I think like there's, there are some bosses in Hollywood who, who are resolutely anti-toxic. Uh, I think about somebody like Vince Gilligan, the guy who um, co-created and ran, he created Breaking Bad, co-created Better Call Saul, um, was one the showrunner on those shows. Um, and is, is by all accounts, a really nice guy and, and um, collaborative and not as about as non-toxic as a successful showrunner can be in the TV business. And uh, so, so sometimes you get people kind of lean away from it and learn from it. But, you know, I think far more often you get people who are like, well, I've been through, I went through that. So other people should go through it too. And it justifies what I'm doing because all these people that I respect did it that way. So if I do it that way, I'm just, I'm just following in their footsteps. So it's not even, it's not even so much that you're following orders. It's more like you're following a, a tradition yeah. that, has gotten, that is perceived to have gotten results. It's so interesting what you're saying about bullying in entertainment because I've done in my in the other part of my life I do these radical candor talks at businesses and and the idea of radical candor is you care and you challenge is a really compassionate candor but what often happens is what I call obnoxious aggression or bullet some form of bullying and yeah. uh, and then when you care but you don't challenge it's ruinous empathy and when you neither care nor challenge it's manipulative insincerity. And I've gone all over all different kinds of companies. And almost every company says, oh, our problem is ruinous empathy. Like even on Wall Street, which does not have a reputation. You know, I expected them to self-identify as obnoxious aggression. But no, they thought they were ruinously empathetic too. Of course. And the only place I've ever been on the planet that said, oh, yeah, our problem is that we're assholes is Hollywood. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's and you know it's a dream factory, so it's good at sort of disguising what it does, you know, and 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 hiding from uh, you know one of the big I think revelations that have has come out of the actor strike and the writers guild strikes is that people are now talking without abandon. They're 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 finally talking openly about what they have endured as working class people trying to make TV and film in Hollywood. And so now you look on social media and you're seeing an act, an actress that you know, that you've seen in a ton of roles talking about, you know, how she had to have a second job when she yeah. was starring on a hit show. <laughs> you yeah. know, you hear actors from Orange is the New Black saying that as the show was, was winning Emmy Awards, um, the, the cast... Um, couldn't afford to, some of the cast, couldn't afford to take cabs to the production um, to go to work. Um, you know, one of the things that I realized um, just in my years of covering Hollywood, um, when you do TV dramas, they take a long time to film. Um, they usually work, you know, 12 to 18 hour days, um, six days a week. You know, a show like 24, if you remember that on Fox, you know, it just has a punishing schedule. And and because the lead actors are in most scenes, that means that they're there a lot. And so it means that after a few weeks of working, the lead actors get really tired. And if they're in a situation where they can't take mass transit, uh, if they're working in Vancouver, Canada, if they're working uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, if they're in Chicago, um, it's a real issue. And I, I found out just from watching podcasts that 
the cast of Smallville had to almost revolt against the production to get Tom Welling, the star, to get this show to pay for a driver to take him to work. Because um, falling asleep while you're driving home from production um, is a real danger. Um, And some people have died um, because of that. Uh, and, and to think that, you know, uh, a cast would have to do something that extreme to push uh, a TV network and a coffin up a few bucks. So there's a driver waiting to take, you know, the star and maybe the people who are in most scenes in an, in an episode to take them to and from their home. It, you know, that's the kind of thing you're dealing with in Hollywood, you know, amounts that really wouldn't amount to much, but they're resisting paying even that. Royalty checks are like under five bucks for royalty checks that are 23 cents that are two cents. That's a result of streaming more than, more than anything. Um, But, but we're talking about things that are the result of choices. So that's that's something that Moraine also talks a lot about is that people in these, um, in these executives uh, in Hollywood act as if they don't have a choice when they do, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody decided, to take a hard line stance on getting a car and a driver for Tom Welling on Smallville, probably because they didn't want to set a precedent because eventually the stars of every CW show, if they found out he had a car and a driver, they would ask for it too. Uh, But the point is it's a safety thing. You know, don't, don't you want your leading man uh, to arrive to work safely every day and and get home safely every day, Um, either cut the amount of hours that he's working or give them a car and drive. Yeah. Um, so so it's it's those kind of things where people act like they don't have a choice, but they really do. If they would just um, follow the values that they say they stand for. You know, that's and I'm sure that's something that you get to when you try to have this radical, radically candid conversation in businesses. You quickly find out that people are doing things because they're making choices and they're acting like they don't have choices. Yeah. That reminds me of the there's a saying in tech, uh, at least for those who are more thinking about making sure that it's equitable, that tech is not neutral. You yeah. can't just have it there and it be yeah. non-biased. You have to build in the structure. You have to build in the mechanisms. You have to build in the protocol um, and the training and the safety mechanisms to make sure that it's doing the thing towards good. Uh, and I think we're, we're talking about the writer strike and the actor strike and, AI is one of those examples where people think, well, it's just AI. And you can't just think about it, about it not stealing work or it's uh, kind of like uh, infringing or being racist or in its tone or bias, all that stuff. Um, You have to actually build in those safeguards to make sure that it doesn't do that. And when we're talking about the work environment and bullying those structures, you can't just say, well, I just run a company. Everyone left to their own devices is going to do the right thing. And you have to build these structures in in order to have this framework and these guardrails to prevent this, the bad stuff from happening. Well, and it goes beyond that, as you guys will know, you can't even just have policies that tell people not to bully. You have to have an internal culture that discourages it because people are used to, again, you know, your employees look to their leaders almost like children look to their parents. It doesn't matter what you tell your kids. What it matters is what you do. You know, do, do people get punished for breaking policy or do they get rewarded if they break policy, but a good result comes of, it? you know, what messages are you sending as a leader 
about what actually matters in your company versus what you say matters. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. I sort of feel like that's America. America as a whole, our, through our history, we've always said we were about one thing and then we do something else. Yeah. <laughs> we, we always say we're a land, we're, we're about freedom. Yeah. But, you know, um, we it's were established. The bones of our the bones of our success as a nation were built on the backs of finding this whole group of people in Africa and defining them as not people. Yeah. So that we could bring them over here and yeah. treat them like super sophisticated uh, cows or horses. And um, and and that's a central hypocrisy about America that is just kind of kept going. And we say we're about promoting freedom around the world, but when there are governments that are hostile to our interest, um, we undermine them, even if yeah. they're replaced by autocracies. Yeah. <laughs> we, yes. we, you know, it, yeah. and um, people talk about critical race theory. I mean, you know, all the stuff that's been said about critical race theory in the, in, you know, recently, most of it is a crock. People don't really understand what it is. But if, if you know a bit about the actual theory that's discussed at the college level, you know, Derek Bell, the Harvard law professor who helped create this idea, one of the things he used to say was that social progress doesn't happen in America unless the people who run things and dominate the culture get something out of it. So when you look at the, um, the Voting Rights Act in the mid in, 19, in the mid 60s, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, that legislation that ended segregation and gave the right to vote to black people and non-white people in America. Um, when that was happening, JFK was looking at countries in Africa that were being established, um, that were breaking away from Britain and becoming independent. America was looking at countries in Latin America that were having revolutions and starting up new governments. And America would try to come to them and say, hey, you know, align yourself with the West, align yourself with America and with the European powers. And, you know, Liberia would look at America and say, black people can't vote in your country. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> why, why, will, why, why wouldn't we consider aligning ourselves with the Soviet Union? Communists? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one major reason why America had to stop officially oppressing black people is because it had a hard time selling this vision of the country as democracy in other parts of the world when there was a, a, a huge segment of the population that was not free. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of uh, Soviet hypocrisy versus American hypocrisy. And somehow in that, it like not an ideal pressure, but it forced it forced us to make change. Yeah, I think you're exactly exactly right. And it's it's sad that it has to happen that way or that it has happened that way. I don't know. Are you optimistic? Can we build solidarity? Can we rebuild solidarity and uh, and and make things happen in a in a better way? Make change? Um, you know, I think what we're learning is that the forces that feed racism and prejudice and systemic oppression are elemental, are more basic to our country and our being than we want to admit. And it yeah. is really hard uh, to get rid of them. And whenever you make progress in America, especially, you get a backlash that threatens yeah. to wipe out some of that progress. And on top of all of that, we have a situation where, um, you know, people, people talk about the threat of AI being that people will get replaced. 
that a journalist like myself would get replaced by a program that would write stories or voice radio programs or actors would be replaced by, um, you know, really good looking um, counterfeit images. And of course, that's um, a concern. But my biggest concern about AI is that it creates an environment where you're never sure about what you're seeing. For example, the Dali Museum in St. Petersburg could create a promotional video featuring Salvador Dali talking about things that he couldn't possibly have known about <laughs> using AI. Yeah. And at some point, people may forget how that video got created and think that he actually said those things. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah. so, uh, you know, what worries me is that we're reaching a point where it's hard to judge what is true and what is not, what is fact and what is fiction. And particularly because we have leaders who are committed to winning above all and uh, will will not acknowledge or admit when they're saying things that are easily provably false. Yeah. And so what happens when you have a whole uh, a, a large group of voters that don't care about what's true enough, you know, and can't be persuaded? I mean, you know, the great strength that reporters once had is that we would go investigate a situation. We would present a story that just laid all the facts out and we would let the public decide what they thought about. Yeah. Uh, because we would trust them to say, oh, OK, all the, if all these things are true, then this is how we feel about this politician or this is how we feel about this issue. But now we've reached a point where people are so polarized that um, they will deny obvious facts or they will find some rationalization or they'll just say, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. what do you do when you, when you get to the point where a significant part of the population in a democracy uh, doesn't care what's true and what isn't? Or they're so traumatized by the fact that, as Steve Bannon said, this, the zone has been flooded with shit that, uh, that they can no longer process, you know, uh, uh, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with you about AI. But, well, I feel like people, I feel like what's happening now is that a lot of people have a vision of how they want to see themselves and how they want to see the world. And they go out into the wide world of media and they can accept media that may challenge that worldview sometimes, or they can accept media that almost never does. Mm -hmm. And the media that almost never challenges that worldview is lying to them. Yeah. And they know it and they don't care yeah. because they'd rather live in a world where the things they want to believe are true are true uh, rather than live in a world where um, they have to accept that some of the things they want to be true are not true. Yeah. There's one uh, way of like angering someone is being is attacking a thing that they care about. But the other way to really trigger someone's anger is to challenge their sense of self. And if they feel that they're doing the right thing or they are um, in the right side of history and then you challenge that, that is something that is going to be almost like a third rail into trying to have a conversation because they are in that place of emotion that they don't even want to engage on that subject. Exactly. And, and what modern politicians have done is they've managed to take a whole host of issues and turn them into identity issues. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things about the attempt to demonize this term identity politics is that the conservatives who are trying to demonize that term, it perfectly describes what they are doing. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, to, keep, to, 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 to stall 
progress on gun control, you make owning a gun a part of your political identity. Yeah. In order to um, curtail abortion, you make opposing abortion a part of your political identity. And it gets your followers uh, to fight for those issues in a way that they wouldn't fight if you were just having a dry policy debate about wouldn't it be good if we did this and we did that. But it also makes it much harder. So it makes it much more likely that you win because your your supporters fight harder. But it also makes it much harder to find a compromise because you're asking people to give up a piece of themselves. You're not just asking them to compromise on a political issue. Yeah, I think I think that is so well said. And so in some ways identity politics that phrase has followed some of the same pathway that the, the phrase race baiting has followed. It's a it's a dangerous dangerous term because it gets used and then and then flipped on its head and used in a totally different way. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean one of the I mean one of the things you do when you're in a rhetorical fight especially is you accuse your opponent of doing the things you are doing. Yeah. Uh and so, you know, race race baiter identity politics, um tokenism, you know, all of these things are uh phrases that have been used and tried to be demonized because that's what they're doing and they're trying to <laughs> yeah. They're trying to cloud the issue by accusing their opponents of of doing it. And then the other thing you want to do is you want to take you want to take whatever is your opponent's advantage and you want to turn it into a disadvantage, which yeah. is also the reason why they're trying to demonize words like uh, woke, which yeah. originally mm-hmm. um, you know, was a was a really short, sharp way of articulating the uh, opposition to systemic oppression. And and now um, you know it's been used as a rallying cry and a slur, and 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 their and feminism before that. Yes, I gotta say that this has been a really great conversation, and it's a shame that we're limited by time here. Um, <laughs> just so we can try to, I guess, end on a note. What would, in summary, in terms of how you feel the current landscape is? Where would you say? things are now in that arc? Are we going towards, in terms of like the strike, are, we, are people trying to actually arrest their power back? Or are we talking about the cusp of the election and the front runner being multiply indicted and still the front runner? <laughs> right. Where would you say that where we are like on the pendulum swing? Well, I guess what I would say is if you've ever been involved in a creative endeavor where you're pushing yourself and you're doing something different, there's a moment when you've been working hard and you've been pushing and fighting and you don't know if it's going to happen or not. And you don't really, you can't really tell how close you are to making it happen. All you know is that you've been pushing and fighting for a long time and you've achieved some things. It feels like you've made progress, but it's hard to tell where you are. And often, if you keep pushing for a little further, you get to the end and you realize, oh, <laughs> like that 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 was the last moment when it felt uncertain but it really i was almost to the end of it and and so i admit that this is a hope not something that i could say you know i really believe this is happening this is what i hope is happening what i hope is that we're kind of at a point where um we're really pushing back against some of these things and it's possible that this might be sort of the last push that we need to sort of get to another level 
Uh, if we can get to the point where people who deny facts definitively lose another election and are uh, pushed out of power, even uh, convicted of crimes and have to serve jail time, then we've reached a point where at least uh, some of this misinformation and disinformation will be discouraged because it won't have resulted in what people wanted. Yeah, it won't have worked. It won't, it won't have worked ultimately, you know? I mean, we've, we've had several years where it's kind of not been working, <laughs> but we know, but, but somehow it, 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 it's like, uh, it's like a zombie. It keeps rising. Yeah. You know, uh, I remember in early 2020, I was speaking at the university of Pennsylvania actually. And, uh, and afterwards I was having dinner with some students and a friend of mine who taught there, Barb, Barb brought me out there and we were talking about the coming election. And I said, you know, um, the only way I see Trump losing is if something happens that's so terrible that people die. And I hadn't even <laughs> really heard about COVID at all. Wow. I, didn't, I didn't know much about it. But I just said, you know, like something, because what happens is in, in a typical political environment, that misinformation and disinformation has a powerful effect, uh, particularly among conservatives. And it takes reality sort of punching through that. To, yeah. to turn people's heads. And in, 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 for George W. Bush, it was the economy going off a cliff. Yeah. Um, and for Trump, it was COVID. Yeah. Uh, where reality just came out of nowhere and sort of exposed that the emperor had no clothes, right? So, but, but, but the, the unfortunate result of that is that the misinformation and disinformation kind of gathers and comes back in stronger and different ways. So, so now, <laughs> You know, you're trying to make the case that misinformation and disinformation is not the way to run a political campaign or to run a government. And, you know, some people are going to have to lose an election to make that point again, I think. Yeah. And, and that's kind of that's kind of where we are. And I also kind of feel that way about, you know, a lot of this is a de facto and hidden conflict over systemic oppression and whether or not it's something that actually holds people back. You yeah. Know, do we have issues in policing and employment and housing and education that still require uh, some kind of correction to create a level playing field for people from oppressed groups and people who've been from historically advantaged groups? And that's the fight that we still keep having in a lot of different ways about a lot of different subjects. And I feel like we're at that point too, where it's, it just sort of feels like we can't tell if we're at the end of that fight yet, or if we're at, or if we're about to go to a new level of that fight. But we have to keep fighting and pushing, and then hopefully the clouds apart, and we'll see that we've made some progress. Well, and I think words matter and stories matter, and so thank you for the work you're doing because I, I think that's a big part of what's going to help uh, help restore the next election to some semblance of sanity is c continuing to tell real stories uh, and, and to choose your words carefully. So thank you. That's my hope, is that we could just get back to talking about facts. Yes. Things that actually have happened. <laughs> that would be great. And, um, and when th something is proven to not be true, that there's enough blowback on politicians who refuse to admit that truth, that they, they can't do it anymore, that they have to admit that something's not true. They have to admit they lost an election. They have to admit insurrection happen they have to admit it yeah um, you know we're not quite there yet here's hoping we'll get there all right <laughs> wesley you want to take us home 
Yes, um, I think this is really interesting um, timing with AI talking about taking jobs with uh, Joan is the worst is now trending on Netflix, which is about AI taking over um, the writing. But we welcome stories like that, like yours, like everyone else. And we would love for you to email us at hello at just work together if you want to share your story. And if you are on an app that takes ratings, if you could give us a five star rating or use the comments there to send us feedback as well. So we are always looking to improve and always looking to touch with everyone. So if you want to get in touch with us, those are two ways. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. Take care.